This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 17th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. When the entire roster of decision makers for a city turns over on a fairly regular basis, it can be hard to stick with a budget plan. And like all politicians, electoral success can depend on engaging in some particularly bad budgeting. Mark Moses is author of The Municipal Financial Crisis. He argues that if cities want to maintain long-term and credible plans for fiscal management, it's important to first draw the lines between what governments should and should not be doing. Before we get down into some specific uh, issues related to municipal finance, uh, in general, are there categories of problems that cities have, or are all problems just basically problems of funding? Well, I I think it goes deeper than funding. I think it goes to what drives the need for funding and how do municipalities view their funding sources. And so the, uh, I mean, when I think about the problem of reining in budgets or the problem of spending, I think you've got to go deeper than simply spending. You have to look at It's the organization's activities that drive their costs and their scope and decisions they make about their scope and mission determine their activities. Uh, And then the goals and standards they set give rise to that scope. So we've we've preempted uh, a lot of attempts to control costs in just the way we set our goals. Uh, Many organizations, municipalities have explicit if not implicit goals to maximize services but when you think about it what does that mean if the only way you get funding is by drawing it from the local economy maximizing services has to mean maximizing taxes and fees and that's the kind of pattern you see in in municipal organizations and from my perspective the real issue isn't that spending is too high or taxes are too high. It's that under the current structure and way of operating and decision-making, spending is always going to grow and taxes and fees are always going to need to go higher. So it, you you cite a couple of uh, cities here with their mission statements and the vision that underlies those uh, mission statements. You said, So Bend, Oregon, uh, you quote their mission as providing the right public services for the city's way of life. Now, whatever the way of life is, uh, the right public services, that those are decisions that, that have to be made. Um, and in a political environment, uh, the people pulling those strings, the people who control the purse strings, that changes. And so for a city to have a, a vision, it almost seems anathema to politics uh, the idea that a city could have a vision. Well, of course, the vision uh, is subject to the preferences of the people who hold some political office or political accountability. Exactly. And when you start with such a broad kind of vision as maximize services, and then the standard for determining the scope and those services is you know, so, yeah, some vague community interest, public interest, community benefit, uh, community character, you know, which is used a lot with zoning too. Uh, and those aren't, those are never defined. Nobody tries to define them. They're just kind of like you imply it's the, it's the political will or, or 
wave of the moment that decides that. And part of what I try to bring out in the book is that there's no mystery to why there's a problem if you think about it's it's impossible to manage or budget for an amorphous organization. And that's what our cities have become by design. Uh, and so you can you can look like a good manager and you can talk well and you can juggle well, but you're not really managing if the organization isn't defined. And the same thing with budget. You can have glossy budget books and nice presentations and do a lot of work, but make no mistake about it. What you're doing is not financial planning. It's not visionary. It's chasing down what's right in front of you right now. And that's no way to run an operation that has become very complex and that the local residents and business owners depend on. So uh, if you're a a newly elected mayor or you're a newly elected uh, member of a city council, uh, how do you assure that, and let's let's clarify further, let's say that you have an interest in long-term sustainable finances for your city. How do you assure that the plans that you make are not immediately undone the moment you leave office? And and and, and further, of course, anything, any rule that you could craft to make your preferences long lasting sounds awfully dangerous. If that rule is is uh, in place for somebody who has terrible preferences, exactly. And that's why uh, legislating sanity, legislating fiscal prudence uh, is is not a do it and you're done and you can go home kind of business. There there may be some things you can do top down that that encourage fiscal prudence uh, and maybe set the tone. But I, I think you have to recognize the limitation. Again, I, this for me, this all comes back to the scope of the organization and that's where the discussions need to be and that's what needs to be emphasized. So I think you have to recognize the limitations of top-down legislation. For example, controlling revenues. Well, revenues tied to what? Often those are just tied to whatever the revenues happen to be now with a cap. But that doesn't address the drivers of spending. And yes, spending is a problem, but limiting expenditures doesn't address the scope of the organization, and therefore it doesn't address the drivers of spending. And balanced budget requirements becomes a math game. And it's more, it it drops, well, how was the budget balanced? Uh, what expense? Did you forego critical infrastructure maintenance? Did you push off burdens to the next generation? And so, again, balanced budget requirements, as nice as they sound, don't address the drivers of spending. So I think to the extent that you can do things legislatively that will maybe set the tone longer. Again, I've seen it where well-run cities had a change in council where the council just flipped and they went down the tubes very quickly. And so the, the, the good positive policies that were put into place may have slowed things a bit, but ultimately you're relying on those are the decision makers for the legislative body. And there's there's not a lot you can do to compensate for if they're really determined to spend crazy or expand the scope unlimited, 
it, it's very difficult to legislate it. But if you legislate anything, I think you've got to legislate limitations on scope and things that encourage very cautious consideration when scope is expanded. And so whether that's a supermajority or full majority, but it, which is the opposite of what's being done nowadays, right? A lot of states are, their legislation is putting in mostly unfunded mandates, one size fits all type solutions that are being forced to the local level. And so you can, a big step is undoing those things that add damage. Uh, but again, I think the the next best thing is is try to limit the scope. But again, as I say that in the back of my mind is, well, what about emergency provisions? What about, and you have to understand the culture at the local level is they want to do everything. They want to do more. And there's no local equivalent of a Supreme Court to appeal to, to say, oh, this is beyond the scope. That just never comes up. And the the, the city attorneys, they're, they don't consider their job, I mean, their job is to determine what's legal and what's not legal. But often the, the approach they take is to please the council, to help the council find a reason why they can do something rather than really uh, enforce a, a an environment that where again the functions delimited and you know what the the scope of the organization is what it is and what it does now you said balanced budgets and this is a term that you say is bankrupt and I, I think I understand why but but please explain why uh, that term I mean is it meaningless? Almost. I mean, you you have to qualify it so much and have so much context to really make sense of it, because really what it means is you've managed to put together a budget where the expenditures of the year do not exceed the resources of the year. And, and those resources can be very broad. In the broadest sense, they can even be borrowed money money pulled from the last of the reserves. And so, and on the expense side, you you don't really get a feel for, well, what things should they be spending money on given the responsibilities the organ that the organization's taken on through all of this ownership of the public infrastructure? Again, what maintenance is not being done? What infrastructure is not being replaced? And so, yeah, you can, quote, balance a budget, but at what expense? And so it uh, it's not a long-term perspective, and you really do need a long-term perspective. When, when council members would ask me, what's the financial condition of our organization? That's a very difficult question to answer out of context. Is, a, oh, do we have enough cash to make it through the next six months or the next year? Or... Do we have enough to meet our obligations over a two-year period, three-year period? Do we have enough to weather an economic storm? Or, But we don't even know the answers to those questions because it's rare to even do a full inventory of all of the infrastructure maintenance that needs to be done. Cities are horrified and afraid to actually put numbers on the what's lapsed in terms of in infrastructure maintenance. And I think in some cases that would eclipse some of the the obligations to pensions and retiree medical. 
because they've taken on so much in the way of of infrastructure, whether it's utility infrastructure or street uh, and sidewalk and lighting infrastructure. And those th- those require a long-term commitment. When those are competing week to week or month to month with with public safety issues and high profile issues and pet projects, they don't get full attention. So I, I wonder because uh, we were talking about balanced budgets and, and where all that money can come from in the short run so that you get that nice clean headline in the paper that says city balances budget uh, or you know, city council passes balanced budget. And that all sounds uh, so I think what you're saying is more broadly cities need to get a clear handle on what their responsibilities are. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, and, and it's confusing to people. It's confusing to incoming council members. You know, you, in March, you see a headline, city has budget deficit of $2 million, but you have no sense of scale for that. You have, there's no explanation as to what that really means. And then, yeah, by June, you see, oh, council adopts balanced budget. And then the real kicker is about five months later when the financial statements are prepared, it's like, oh, city has a $500,000 surplus. And so there's, I mean, there's no way to integrate those, those facts uh, from the outside. And so people wind up getting just paralyzed by the, the, the data out of context, the uh, up and down kind of snapshot you know, taglines, yeah, balanced budget, deficit, structural deficit, and it makes their head swim. And so the, uh, and they're usually so burned out by the time they adopt the budget, they they don't do the things that they could be doing to pave the way for the next budget. Because I'll tell you, as a finance director, budget manager, by the time you sit down and get ready to start preparing the budget for the upcoming year, you've the, all the decisions have been made. You're not really doing financial planning. You're not really doing budgeting. You're really accounting for all of the commitments, obligations, whether it's on the labor side. And on the labor side, it's not just compensation. It's how they do the work. It's the conditions of in which the labor operates. So all these things are already in place, contractual obligations. Uh, I, I do bring up in the book how zero-based budgeting in the municipal context uh, just doesn't work right from the start. Uh, sometimes if you've got organizations that are more program-oriented, which cities are generally not, uh, you can maybe look at programs some, from somewhat zero-based. But in cities where you have so much inertia, uh, you've got so much difficulty in in changing the way you deliver services. Like I said, budget is pre- preparation is accounting for every all these commitments that have been made. And so I, I sat down to try a zero-based experiment, and it was kind of like, well, I got the labor agreements and all that that implies. I've got all these contractual obligations that are already in place that can't be undone uh, going into the next year. You've got things that take years to unravel, that if you wanted to get rid of them, you would have had to have start, started two years ago. And so by the time you're done, if you're lucky... 99% of the revenues have been spoken for. Uh, if you're unlucky, maybe 105% of the revenues have been spoken for. And, and that's where you get those headlines of deficits. And then you've got to scramble to, to make it work. 
So for long-term planning, like I, I think about this in terms of like a, a family budget, which is probably inappropriate in a lot of ways. Uh, the members of my family don't swap out every four or five years. Um, and, you know, families have sinking funds. Families save money for an upcoming expense. Uh, you know, how well do cities plan for routine maintenance that comes along every 15 years for a park or for sidewalks or for, you know, really basic things? I would say the best things out there, you don't hear about them because they go on very quietly because the things you hear about are the things that have been politicized and that starts to eat away at the long-term planning, the sinking funds, the building up of funds in the name of, well, remember, we've got to maximize services. If you save that money for the 15-year project that needs to be done, look at all the programs we can't do now. And, and the now tends to overshadow the more prudent thinking of, hey, this really is real stuff that we have to maintain, and we really do need to have the resources to replace it when its time comes up. I've got an election in two years. I can't, uh, I can't run on we fixed sidewalks. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and that's why uh, public works gets the short end, because they, they can't compete with police and fire. Uh, and, and that on multiple grounds, right? They're, they're not as flashy it's it's more it's less sexy type work and it's more long-term type work in terms of the the vision you need to make sure that you operate it properly uh, special districts that are you know focused special districts are better in that regard but they also suffer from scope creep so you would think okay you have one job it's to uh, provide water or wastewater collection and treatment what happens is they get excited and say, well, we got to buy this open space and we have to do this and we have to do that. And all of a sudden it's like, are you in the wastewater business and water business or are you in the land management business? Let's talk about revenue for a minute. For cities and counties, you know, municipal uh, level government, there, I, I assume property taxes are a huge fraction of uh, the revenue that cities and counties take in. Yeah, it, it varies. Um, I mean, typically it can be in that 30 to 40% range, but some of it depends on the demographics of your city and do you bring in business-related taxes. Uh, but certainly, certainly property taxes are substantial. Okay, so to that extent, uh, there are a lot of people who live in uh, cities, counties, that are essentially saying to their local officials, we don't want any new revenue because we don't want any new housing. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's that's a tricky thing about. Well, all of these things can be politicized, right, and and used as ways to impede growth. Uh, in the case of controlling revenues, yeah, again, you have to look at yeah, what is really motivating it. Uh, if it's trying to cap or help control property taxes, then I go back to, well, yeah, but what's it tied to? Usually these things are just, you assume the status quo is an okay starting point, but 
Uh, I see that internally with department budgets. Whenever they do a freeze, it's like everyone has to stand in place and there's no real evaluation of, well, we're, was the place you were in really enough or too much or, uh, or just right. And so, and then, yeah, if you're, if you're talking about using revenue as a way to control growth, I mean, that's something that typically happens in a number of ways, whether it's controlling revenues, controlling, uh, using the utilities and using the, the planning of utilities to stave off growth. Because if you just, if you don't make any allowance for, for new hookups in your water planning or wastewater planning, you've got an easier way to tell developers, no, we don't have capacity here. Uh, or what happens more and more nowadays is anybody can come up with any kind of environmentally related objection to a, a new water plant or uh, growth in a, in a municipal utility that that effectively uh, controls growth before you even get to the anywhere near the, the, the city council for final approval of a development. Oh, so bad planning can get you what you want in many cases. Exactly, exactly. Especially when the bar's so low for objecting. Uh, and and, and I'm, this isn't original with me, it's been pointed out that these environmental studies all focus on what's the impact locally. They don't look at, well, what's the impact in full context if you don't build this development here? What, what really happens? And so you've got these very narrowly focused studies that almost anybody can use to sabotage a development. And, and we see it now in, in terms of just the struggle to have adequate housing uh, and, and keep housing affordable by keeping the supply of housing growing. You talked a little bit about uh, public infrastructure and the degree to which cities enjoy or feel is necessary for them to take over pieces of infrastructure uh, how do you draw that line? Because it seems to me pretty clearly that, you know, most infrastructure in the United States is privately owned and uh, cities don't have uh, city councilmen and, and the people they hire to manage things don't necessarily have expertise in that area. And it, it, it strikes me that there are a lot of ways for cities to just get out of the business of possessing, owning, or or managing certain types of infrastructure? How should cities think about it? I think they need to think about it long range because they've, they've taken on so much and they've precluded private sector solutions for so long that they can't just walk away from it. And you, you see signs that cities are, are struggling in this area because more and more with new developments, they're asking the developers to make provisions for certain maintenance. And so in a way, they're quietly crying uncle in terms of suggesting that, no, no, we really can't keep maintaining this. And so I think that's a, uh, that's a good sign in that there's some realization of the, just the limitations of the city to be able to handle, of cities to be able to handle these things. And so, but I, I think it's a long-term process of unbundling it uh, and untangling it so that so that more of this can be pushed to the private sector and and people that are 
who really have more of a direct interest in certain parts of town and the and the upkeep because now it's just a political kind of thing or or sometimes a random thing of of which parts of the city get their roads maintained this year and which have to backseat and wait for some future un, undetermined year. I think the same thing with municipal utilities. It's like, if you go back in time, what's the justification for a municipal water or wastewater utility? Well, they're, the private sector isn't ready to provide a solution here. They they wouldn't venture into this. Well, that tells you something. That's really good information because if the market isn't ready to invest in your area, then you're you're ahead of the market. You're outside the market. And then these municipal utilities basically for basically impede any kind of market solutions, market activity. And so they wind up subjecting the the residents and ratepayers to the same things that they were supposedly preempting by by taking over. Uh, I, I made a recommendation to a wastewater utility one time that there was no need to increase rates, that there was plenty of revenue based on the current rates. The rates absolutely did not need to be increased uh, for any of the upcoming few years. And the board could not help themselves. They they voted for an increase just because they could. They were sitting there. Uh, they had to make a decision about the upcoming year. And they made up all these spurious kinds of reasons and justifications like, well, we could have some new thing that comes up that we don't know about now. Or if we raise the rates now, it'll be less of an impact sometime in the future. And so all, all these things that they were supposed to be protecting ratepayers from in terms of spurious rate increases, uh, they they were doing themselves. And th- the same thing goes for infrastructure. You've got a, f- a few special districts that charge enough to maintain their infrastructure, but there's so much political pressure to keep rates down, and we're seeing the result of this, that they're not doing justice. They're they're not charging as much as they should for uh, water or wastewater services, and the their infrastructure is deteriorating. And then it's a big shock to the system when those systems fail or when they just can't patch things anymore. And so, but look what's happened. You look for a way out, and you say, "Hey, this really isn't working." But you've preempted private solutions, so there aren't private companies ready just to take over. And so I think you have to look at that as a long-term venture and maybe declare, hey, in 10 years, we're getting out of this business. And then you give yourself some time to to figure out solutions. So it's not just a fire sale that that turns over the the water, wastewater operations to just the first person in line or somebody who just happens to be there locally, but you give it time to really develop. But But that's the problem with when you keep the market out for decades and decades, you're you're not going to have good market solutions. And and part of what I try to get across in the book is that it's got to be okay to say no to certain things. That these agencies are equipped to handle certain things, right? What is a 
local agency. It's a legislative authority. It, it's got some maybe limited taxing authority, and it's an enforcement authority. But that means it's good at some things, it, defining property rights, enforcing local laws, sure. But running a monopoly, monopoly utility, running a commercial or quasi-commercial activity, engaging in social and philanthropic activities, not so much. And And part of it is because it's a legislative taxing and enforcement authority, it's got all these requirements, right? You've got Public Records Act, you've got Public Meetings Act, you've got civil service or near or, or civil service-like ways of managing hiring and managing personnel. Well, you put all that overhead on running a recreation department or running uh, a social act related activity. Uh, it's it's no wonder it's done inefficiently and and the results are poor. It's just the organization is not equipped. I used to shudder when people would come to council, and I get it. People they want to get their money's worth out of their taxes. So and and the city hall is kind of sold as a one shop one stop shop for solving all problems local. So you uh, so. I would be thinking as people would be saying, oh, we need council to get involved in this or the city needs to get involved in that. I would shudder just thinking, if you understood how we really operated, I don't think you'd be coming here asking us to do these things because we're, we're not really well equipped to handle them. Mark Moses is author of The Municipal Financial Crisis. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.